Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. And for this episode, we have on Robert Kobold. We're going to talk about the economic roots of the eco-crisis. And Robert's background is that he's the program manager of the Green Schools Project. He is founder and editor of ConsciousEvolution.co.uk, which is an online philosophy publication. He's studied sustainable exchange and monetary systems and how they affect climate change with Jem Bandel, author of Deep Adaptation. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Thank you very much, Josh. So we connected via Twitter, which has been happening more and more with me because that's sort of a new thing. I'm ranging into that world. And while there is a lot of garbage out there, there are some gems. And my opinion, you're one of the gems. You're one of the folks who are saying things that need to be said and are fascinating to me and frankly cut through a lot of the crap. So that's why I wanted to invite you on the podcast and the concept of economics. I mean, obviously, ECO, eco, and then ecology and all that stuff, it all ties in as well as I have this concept. So it's like eco, ego, evo. So evolution, you have that in your thing. So it seems like we're on the same page about a lot of stuff. But tell, tell me what your thoughts are just in general on how economics tie into our current eco-crisis. Sure. So it's very obvious that our economic system is unsustainable. Um, if you look at what we're doing to our planet and what we're doing to uh, the biodiversity, what we're doing to the topsoil, uh, what we're doing to the fish in the ocean, um, the amount of fertilizers we're using, all of these are brushing up against the limits of planetary boundaries. And economic growth is frequently cited as the culprit um, driving all of these problems. So that's well understood and doesn't need to be said by me or anyone else. Um, what is hidden from view is the key systemic drivers which necessitate that growth. And what I'm talking about here is the way money is designed. So everybody knows that economic growth causes ecological collapse. Hardly anybody understands how money is designed. So if I ask a simple question, where does money come from? Um, would, do, do you know the answer out of interest? Do I personally know the, the answer of where money comes from? Um, and, and, and no shame if you don't, because no. something like eight out of 10 politicians in the UK also don't know. Yeah, let's, um, let's, and, let's test my uh, limited skills. Um, well, it's sort of uh, imaginary, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and and who, who, who gets to create it? Um, I mean, there's aspects tying into Federal Reserve. Um, I suppose there are aspects tying into companies that are producing goods, but uh, this is not my forte. So, yeah, tell tell me the answer. I'd love to know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, right right off the bat, doesn't that strike you as odd that you know here we are, we're adults. Um, you know, we go around all day using money. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, the, the sort of Federal Reserve or the central bank, that's the most common answer. Yeah. Um, and it's true that the, the central banks create about 3% of money in circulation. They create the, no the notes and coins. Okay. Uh, but 97% of money is not created that way. Hmm. And hardly anybody knows that, including, like I say, about eight out of 10 politicians. Yeah. Um, even people who've spent their entire lives working in finance 
uh, even economic professors have been shown to be wrong on this issue. So immediately, huh. something's fishy, right? Why on earth don't we know where money comes from? And the shocking and incredible answer is that 97% of money is created by private banks hmm. when they make loans. Okay. So Josh, you go along to a private bank, um, uh, what's the city bank, city group, mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of an American high street bank, works. and you take out a loan because you're about to buy a, an apartment, let's say. Mm -hmm. So you say, here's my income, I want a £100,000 loan so I can buy an apartment. Sure. And the Citibank will look at all your details, and if they decide you're good for it, they will, with a few strokes of their keyboard, create £100,000 out of thin air, mm -hmm. deposit that in your bank account, and then charge you interest for that service. So okay. even so, though 100... Okay. So out of thin air. So I was kind of right about it being imaginary. <laughs> kind of, kind of, yeah. But, but it's, it's, it's not to say that they, they still have to balance their books at the end of the day. Okay. So at the end of the day, they still have to make up for that £100,000 that they've loaned out. Um, but they can do that in a variety of ways. And the key point is this. At the moment that they make the loan, new money is created. Hmm. And that sounds crazy um, that we've given this ability to create money to a load of profit-seeking private banks. Um, so don't take it from me, take it from the central bankers themselves. Mm -hmm. This is a quote from Paul Tucker, Deputy Governor of Financial Stability of the Bank of England. Banks extend credit by simply increasing the, borrowers, the borrowing customer's current account. Mm -hmm. That is, banks extend credit by creating money. Or equally from the Bank of England bulletin, whenever a bank makes a loan, it simultaneously creates a matching deposit in the borrower's bank account, thereby creating new money. Okay, okay so, so why is this an issue? So going back to our original example, the bank has loaned you £100,000, mm -hmm. but you owe the bank £100,000 plus interest. Right. Okay, so where's that interest going to come from? And the answer is that only £100,000 was created initially, and yet mm. the amount that you owe the bank is getting bigger, and it's getting exponentially bigger because of compound interest. Yep. And so what that means is that there's more debt in the world than there is money. Mm -hmm. Currently, and this is pre-coronavirus, there was something like <laughs> three times more debt in the world than there is money. Right. Which means that collectively, we are all in debt to the banks forever, <laughs> paying interest forever. Okay. And the only way that we can stop the entire house of cards from coming down in a giant uh, you know, debt collapse is to justify creating yet more loans mm -hmm. because those new loans can then service the existing debt. And we go on inflating ourselves and levering ourselves further and further and further until you get a massive crash like the 2008 one or the one that we're currently experiencing. Okay. The problem there is that the only way that banks can justify making new loans to create yet new more money to, in order to service the debts on the existing loans is if the economy is growing. Mm. Because if the economy is not growing, then they can't justify making a loan to a new business, say, or to a new homeowner who's lost his job, mm -hmm. right? And that means that economic growth is a necessity, and without it, the whole debt bubble collapses. Mm. And so, you know, I, I mean, you probably had people on your podcast who talk about degrowth and how we need degrowth. And it sounds like a really great idea. But with money being made the way it is currently, mm -hmm. that degrowth is impossible. Mm. Or at least it's, it, nobody would actually want it in practice. Because imagine saying to somebody who's got a £100,000 mortgage, do you know what? You should just 
try and slow down and work less. You know, right, they, right. they don't have the luxury of that choice because if they do that, they lose their home. And, and collectively, we're talking about bankruptcies, foreclosures, you know, people losing their jobs, crime, extremism, and as history shows us, even war. Mm. So we're between a rock and a hard place, but that is created that rock and a hard place situation we've forced ourselves into by a debt and interest based monetary system. And there are alternative systems that don't require endless growth in order to avoid catastrophe. Okay. So you're not saying, well, that's why we should keep growing and that's just the way it has to be. You're saying we do have other options once we understand the root of what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we you know, maybe, maybe a growth-based system, a debt and interest-based system mm -hmm. made sense, mm -hmm. uh, you know, while we were reaching a certain point of civilizational complexity, right? It's like, right. think about it like a, a teenager going through a growth spurt, you know, actually there's a point where it kind of makes sense to grow really fast yeah. um, and, and even be a bit selfish and, you know, immature in the way you look at things. But the, what we're currently at now is that we're, we're trying to, you know, transcend into sort of civilizational adulthood. And that, that endless growth imperative is going to become unsustainable and it's going to potentially result in our extinction. And yeah. so we need to transition from a debt and interest-based monetary system to a new steady state monetary system. Sure. And I've definitely been uh, talking to some folks about the steady state concept for several years. But before getting into that, which I would like to, so are you saying capitalism evil, the answer is basically socialism or communism? Is that what you're, what you're suggesting? No, no, definitely not. I'm, I'm suggesting that there are other ways of creating money. There are other monetary right. systems that are perfectly consistent with capitalism. We yeah. can still have free market, we still have companies buying and selling, going bust, all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. It's just that we don't have a systemic growth imperative built into the way our money is designed. And that's what I think is really at the heart of the issue, because personally, I'm, I'm not a fan of capitalism. I'm not like, oh, I love capitalism. At the same time, I can acknowledge, well, it has brought a fair amount of folks out of poverty. Uh, we have advanced our quality of life in many ways. Obviously, there's still lots of inequality and there are lots of folks suffering. But, you know, so I look at it that way. But all right, there are definitely limitations and, and I'm not a fan of capitalism. But then people are like, oh, because the answer is socialism or communism. And I look into those systems. OK, I, I think, you know, having more elements of government providing for people can be a really positive thing. And we already have kind of those hybrid systems of government and then places like uh, Nordic countries that have maybe more of like a socialist democracy kind of thing. You know, and then there's full out communism. But of course, when a government says here's exactly what has to go into our lives, obviously, there, there are issues with uh, authoritarianism there. So to me, I haven't really bought the whole just capitalism versus communism or socialism argument, which is why I asked you the question. So this other way of looking at things, so this concept of steady state. So what is steady state? So a steady state economy is going to look so different from anything that anybody has experienced so far that it's quite hard for us to imagine what that might look like. Mm. Um, and, and the reality is that we don't, we don't want to do away with all growth. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at biological systems, uh, ecosystems, once they reach a level of maturity, they don't stop growing. It's just they transition from, um, sorry about that. No problem. They transition from uh, steady state. So, sorry, 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 I'm going to turn my phone off. Um, they transition from quantitative growth, which is basically any kind of growth is a good idea. Like, uh, you know, you plant a seed and the, and the, and the plant is growing to 
qualitative growth when there's mm. certain kinds of growth that they want, but not all kinds of growth. So mm -hmm. I, I think we, we still want to live in a system where, I mean, for example, you know, creative in, creative sectors, well, we want growth in the music industry. We want growth in the arts sector, okay. um, you know, in certain kinds of technology. We want those industries to grow. It's just we don't want any kind of growth indiscriminately. Right. So there's to a, make that point. So it's like it would be one thing to say, OK, we have all the musicians we're going to have in the world. Sorry, you want to be a musician? Nope. Remember, we said we're not growing, so you can't do that. That would right, be exactly. a thing that I think so, most people would argue it does not make sense. It's not positive uh, even. And, and plenty of our economic activities, you know, provides us better quality of life. It provides us rich and diverse possibilities and experiences. So let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Hmm. What, what we don't want, however, the bit that we do want to throw out is this unsustainable growth imperative, which is all linked back to debt and interest. Hmm. OK. And I can give you a, a, a sort of uh, thought experiment here to really illustrate my point. So th this is why the mechanism of interest is ultimately cancerous. It requires growth for the sake of growth in order to sustain it. And it incentivizes growth for the sake of growth. Hmm. So imagine two people uh, who walk into a bank uh, to take out a loan because they'd like to protect a tract of rainforest, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So it is, uh, somebody walks into a bank, they say, look, there's this beautiful tract of pristine rainforest. I want a loan of about a million dollars so I can buy it and preserve it. And I'm going to look after it. And if you ever want the money back, Mr. Banker, I can just sell the rainforest and you can get your million pounds back. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So the bank says, well, how will you pay the interest on that loan? And so his, he doesn't get the loan. Mm. Man number two comes along and says, I'd like to borrow a million dollars plus a bit extra. And I'm going to buy the rainforest, but I'm also going to hire diggers and loggers. And I'm going to log the rainforest and I'm going to give you three percent a year. Right. Man number two gets the loan. Sure. So by having a mechanism of interest, we've incentivized extractive behaviors. Mm. We've said, if you can put money on the table now, if you, can, if you can take this loan that I give you and you can grow it, then we'll give, you, we'll, we'll give you a loan. And remember, a loan is basically the ability to marshal human and technological and capital, you know, the human cap social capital and human capital. Sure. So it, it's, it's, we're, we're basically, you know, another way of thinking about money, it's the ability to coordinate human time and resources. Mm -hmm. And so we're giving endless amounts of that power to anybody who can promise to multiply the initial sum they were given. And the planet doesn't work like that. You know, the planet doesn't work in, with endless growth. The, you know, the natural world goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. You have growth and then you have death and then you have decay and it, it, goes in a, it goes in a circle. Whereas what we're trying to do is we're trying to grow exponentially in order to keep up with this ballooning debt right. and the natural world can't take it. It's completely out of whack with the natural cycles. So what you're saying is we're mining that interest from the planet. Essentially, it's got to come from somewhere right now. Some thinkers have tried to argue that you can decouple growth from, um, you know, from 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 matter, essentially from from uh, um, extracting wealth from the planet, but it's 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 never it's never we've always been promised that, but it's never it's never been the case. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, th this is uh this is definitely getting to the heart of a lot of the stuff that has sort of been kicking around in my brain, but I haven't really been able to coalesce it because my understanding of economics, <laughs> as anyone who can tell from already listening to me talk, is pretty minimal. But I think that is. A lot of folks don't really quite understand this. And I think folks who are in the environmental movement 
we certainly don't understand this. So I think it's really crucial. I'm curious what you think about this. And this is just a, a half form concept because I didn't quite understand it. But a friend of mine was talking about how well, that film Planet of the Humans came out and it critiques a bit of the large environmental groups. And a lot of those groups come from, they're corporate funded. So they're funded by foundations that typically get their money from corporations and all of that, all sorts of, sometimes it's literally oil companies and things like that. What he was saying is because the film criticized aspects of our endless growth economy, that it, it it really hit them where it hurt because those entities depend on that corporate funding, which does come from this whole concept of mining interest from the planet. So do, do you think that's a, a, a relevant thought? Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen the film, so it's, it's hard for me to comment on it. Sure. But it's just um, the idea that it's critiquing our current economic system, more or less capitalism, I suppose but saying that the big environmental groups don't really want to critique the economic system because they depend on it to basically fund it. Yeah, I, I mean, I would be very wary. I, I don't know enough to cast, you know, cast um, suspicion over any particular large environmental group. I mean, sure. that is part of the problem, right, is that, you know, charities in the environmental sector and in all sorts of NGOs, they do depend on funding, uh -huh. and that funding has to come from somewhere, right? Yes. Um, but here's another thing to consider. I mean, currently, money is artificially scarce. Okay, mm -hmm. because of that fact we talked about earlier, where there's more debt than in the world than there is money. So that means that there's actually there's technically there's never enough money to go around. We've created artificial scarcity. Hmm. Um, but the natural world is abundant, that there's plenty of natural resources to sustain even 8 billion people, right? It's just that it needs to be much more fairly distributed. And also, but the money that we use to exchange all those resources, that's in short supply. Okay. And, and, and you can't pay your interest on your loan with carrots, right? Mm -hmm. And so even if there's plenty of food to go around, everybody still needs to get their hands on money so that they can pay the interest on their debts. And this is true whether you're talking about governments, whether you're talking about businesses, whether you're talking about individuals. And so this is why I find any particular critique of capitalism as it stands it's impossible for us to imagine what capitalism would look like without this um, growth imperative built into the system, without this artificial scarcity that's been placed on our money. So it, it, it's, 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 it's impossible for us to imagine what that might look like. Mm -hmm. um, and the reality is that in a world where actually no one is scrabbling around desperately to pay their debts, then actually, it, you know, w there would be a lot more money to go around. I mean, so one example... Um, imagine a negative interest-based economy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't viable, by the way. Um, it, it was tried on a micro scale in sort of Weimar Republic, um, in this town in Austria that implemented a negative interest uh, rate economy just locally. Um, and it worked very well on a small scale. I don't think it would work on a large scale. Um, however, think about what kinds of behaviors that incentivizes. If money has negative interest, it means that if you put it in the bank, it depreciates. Okay. And so therefore, there's no incentive to hoard the money. So you're, you're actually incentivized to spend it. Hmm. And so it circulates a lot faster. So with, with a much smaller amount of money in the economy, you can actually get a lot more done because it's circulating a lot more quickly, okay. right? Rather than what we have now, which is multi-billionaires investing their money, stashing it away, um, you know, and accruing interest at the very least on that, on that money. 
and so they're, and they're incentivized to, to, to hoard that money. So that essentially, if you're an environmental charity and you're trying to seek funds, you have to somehow, if, if the person giving you that money is self-interested, you have to convince them that that's better than them squirreling their money away and getting 3% a year, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in a money where you've got negative interest, they're happy to give you the money as long as they're going to get it back, right? The man who wants to, who, who wants to buy the rainforest and protect it, he's going to get a million pounds no problem because if they leave that money in the bank, it's going to lose value. Sure. So you completely alter the fundamental incentive structures of society and you incentivize a whole different set of behavior. And that's really what monetary system design is about. It's like currently there's this massive divergence between what money wants and what we want. Money wants to grow endlessly and, and it wants to, you know, it, as I say, it's indiscriminate about what kind of growth it wants, but it has to multiply. Every pound in circulation is tied back to a pound owed to the bank plus interest. So that money has to multiply somehow. Uh -huh. And at the same time, we have all this incredibly important work that needs doing, like conserving rainforests, like carers, like underpaid teachers, like um, charity workers, like mental health practitioners, all of this work that needs doing. But because that work doesn't promise endless growth, they aren't receiving the resources. They aren't receiving the time and, and resources that they need. Yes. So this, there's this huge gap between what money wants and what we want. And I encourage you to think of that as nothing more and nothing less than a design flaw. We need to design money so that it incentivizes behaviors that we collectively as a civilization want, that we want to see more of. And it's as simple as that. Fascinating. So what you're telling me is it's not enough for me to go on a street corner and hold up a sign to change the world. Is that what you're saying? I, I definitely think that's an important part. And by all means, you know, protest, you know, I, I mean, obviously the huge protest going on at the moment, oh, yeah. like have full support. And I've, I myself mm -hmm. have protested for Extinction Rebellion. I've actually got arrested in London. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think protesting is a valuable and important, you know, sort of change making tool. Sure. But there's a huge gap in the environmental movement for understanding the systemic drivers of the issues, right. monetary system being a key one of them. Um, until we change the way money is created, solving climate change is mathematically impossible. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And it's not to belittle the other efforts. For sure, they're all pieces in the puzzle, but we are missing some of the, the main pieces of the puzzle. And it seems a, a lot of what you're talking about is getting to the root of that. So that's all well and good. Let's just say that this actually would solve a lot of our ecological crisis. And I don't really doubt that. I think that this is central to it what would be a catalyst for that change? How are we going to shift a system where there are so many people who currently benefit from it? Those who might be on our side don't really know about this stuff or like me can barely understand it. <laughs> so how do we move forward to make this so? So there's two important ways that we can start to address this issue we can address this systemically as a you know like an entire change in government monetary policy mm -hmm. um you know and there's ngos that pressure governments to do that to raise awareness about the issues but equally as individuals you and i right now can start using alternate alternate monetary systems which aren't based on this extractive debt and interest model um in terms of the large-scale collective changes um, I'd just like to point everyone in the direction of an organization called Positive Money, hmm. which has um, designed a system called Sovereign Money, um, where essentially the proposal is that we would return the ability to create money back to central banks, right? That's a government function. I don't know how it ever got delegated to private profit-making 
banks in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we return it to governments. And essentially, money is created whenever governments spend money. So they spend money directly into the real economy in the form of schools, hospitals, whatever. And then they, whenever they tax money, that removes money from the system. So they've got their hands on the two levers. Spending money by the government creates new money. Hmm. Taxing money destroys money. So they've got their hands on both the levers there. Um, and that would have to be done by an independent, democratically accountable authority, something like a Bank of England that's not, you know, beholden to this, you know, four year cycles of government and all the problems that could come with that. Right. Um, you know, it's not without risk. Obviously, the risk is that governments uh, spend too much and then you get inflation and that's a real issue. Um, but it's certainly no worse than what we've currently got, which is, you know, like I say, systemically driving us off the edge of a cliff. Uh -huh. um, so so that's one system. And the reality is that much as I think that proposal makes total sense to me and I can understand it, I also understand that it's 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 not something which grabs people's attention. If you've ever tried to talk about monetary systems around the dinner table, you'll understand why. <laughs> um, and so it's not something that's going to sort of like, you know, soar through the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. And so it's unlikely we're going to be able to put enough pressure on governments to change. The only thing that might really be the catalyst or trigger for that is basically what we've got now, which is a massive, massive spike in the amount of debt. Mm. Because at that point, you get to the point where governments themselves are struggling and going under, and the whole debt bubble is becoming a problem even for the elites, right? Right. Um, I have a family friend who is the chairman of a big uh, bank, I won't name which, um, and even he, uh, I've heard him moot a debt jubilee uh, as a possible as a possible solution to this problem that we've all got right now. Hmm. And that would have to be the first step, by the way, because if you're going to implement a you know, monetary system that's not based on debt and interest, the first thing you have to do is clear all existing debt. Okay. So debt jubilee sounds kind of radical, but it's been done various times throughout civilization. It would require a whole lot of coordination around the world to make it happen. Um, but I don't see any other alternative at, at the moment. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so that that I, I think it, it would have to be some kind of systemic failure or collapse to really trigger governments to soul search enough right. to find a radical solution like this. But, hey, you know, like it's crazy times we're living through. Maybe that time is now. Yeah, it might just be right now. Yeah. So sometimes it is. I mean, not sometimes. It seems to be almost always it's a calamity that does cause system change. Otherwise, things are too comfortable. Oh, yeah, we could change. But, you know, things are chugging along. OK. But uh, the, the shit has to hit the fan for people to start looking otherwise. And so maybe now this is a time to, even if it doesn't shift over by, say, next year, it could be the time to really get that conversation out there more and more. And people might be more receptive to that. Mm, even even as I say, even elites who themselves are scrabbling around increasingly desperately and they're realizing that, you know, mm. the, 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 the levers that they have at their disposal, you know, a central bank to try and tackle a mounting debt crisis yeah. is basically cut interest rates. That's the that's the one lever that they have at their disposal. But that's that's not working anymore. We're at zero and we've got ballooning debt and slowing economic growth and they don't know what to do about it. So that's when they start looking around for more radical solutions. So now is the time to really pitch, you know, alternate monetary systems. Okay. Um, but but that aside, you know, because I know plenty of people in this space who basically say, good luck and you know they're never gonna they're never gonna go for it because because, you know, I mean, like, I'm no conspiracy theorist. Um, you know, I went down that road for a while and basically kept on meeting increasingly powerful people who are actually all really lovely. <laughs> so I was like, well, if these guys aren't the evil ones, then where are they? Right. Um, but, but 
the monetary system is the number one tool which I would use if I was an evil cabal. <laughs> uh -huh. Because debt, like interest, funnels money from from those who don't have money towards those who do. It's like a giant Ponzi scheme. Uh -huh. um, it, it, like I say, it creates this environmental destruction. Um, but it's, it's a form of economic enslavement, if you think about it. Like I say, we're in debt to the banks forever, paying interest forever. Right. So, so, so what truth there are in conspiracy theorists, it's going to center around this issue for me. This would be, if I was an evil cabal, this would be the number one thing I'd be scared about people finding out about is this debt and interest-based monetary system design flaw. Okay. So, yeah, we're all about conquering evil here at the Green Root Podcast. And I do actually agree with you that there are a lot of terrible things that are going on. But the people who do them are not necessarily always terrible. I think there's probably like a percentage of them that just have shifted over from doing terrible things to being terrible people. But I mean, they're operating in the system that we have going right now and we need to start changing those systems. But so let's say we were able to do that. So in my mind, and this might be naive, but the way I see things in terms of making issues happen is to a certain degree. So let's just say we get the environmental groups on board with this kind of issue and, and then their advocacy they start putting it out there more into the world then media starts picking up on it media you know they're they're mercenaries they, they kind of do what is just most lucrative for them at the time and there is a fair amount of ideology too but if it's not coming from certain advocacy groups or interest groups whatever you say they're not going to really be reporting on it because they're not going to be able to get the clicks and then it's once those stories are out there politicians all of a sudden oh i'm going to start caring about this because this might be impacting my future election or you know more in a wholesome way this is what my constituents care about so it, just um bearing with me just assuming that that's somewhat vaguely correct how would we get the environmental groups to start factoring in some of these economic aspects into their advocacy or their understanding? God, I mean, I'm all ears. Um, I have no <laughs> idea. And do you know what? Do you know what? It, it's not something that I've, I've actually tried to do myself. Um, this has always been, you know, an academic pursuit. Sure. Um, while I'll talk to people about it in a private sphere and I'll raise it with politicians and I'll, I'll raise it with, you know, journalists when I can get hold of them. Um, it, I've not ever gone after environmental groups themselves. Yeah. Um, one thing that is encouraging is that um, Jen Bendel, who, who you mentioned in the introduction, who taught me all this stuff, um, and also another guy called Matthew Slater, who's a sort of um, alternate currency innovator who creates and designs complementary currencies around the world to tackle these issues at a lo more local scale. Um, they are both embedded in the Extinction Rebellion movement. So I, mm -hmm. I know that there is an awareness of um, these issues, at least in Extinction Rebellion. Okay. In fact, I have, think they have a website called Economic Rebellion, um, which sort of breaks some of these ideas down and tries to raise awareness about them. Um, but in terms of like, you know, getting Greenpeace to really sit up and listen, I, like I'm all ears. Yeah. <laughs> any, yeah. any ideas you've got? Let's do it. I mean, maybe just by making podcasts like this, I guess. It's a start, right? So it sounds like with Instinction Rebellion, like you said, there's kind of a, a foot in the door there. So that's definitely a start. I mean, I do find there is a, a lot of limitations in the environmental groups and you bring up issues that they think are a bit out of their sphere or basically hard to communicate to members or would dry up donations or would frankly would upset their corporate funders. Uh, that's really what it all ultimately comes down to. It, it's not like an evil thing in terms of 
they're being your necks are being breathed down by some banker. It's just here's what we got our grant for, and our grant does not say look at economic stuff. So then they don't do it. But it, which isn't to say that there can't be some aspects of it that are started to weave into their fabric. And I, I think the things that you're saying could very well catch on. I can now with my better understanding of this, I can start incorporating a little more into my dialogues because I kind of have a better grasp, a slightly better grasp. I'm still, uh, my mind is not necessarily uh, as geared to these sorts of economic issues. And I actually think that that is part of what is holding back, say, environmentalists. We, we have, we tend to have a different kind of mindset. You know, you, you can get into all sorts of different things with brain differences, but vague concepts of doing good and fluffy ideas. And I've been a fluffy idea person for a long time, but getting into the nitty gritty of here, how, here's how the monetary systems work. That is not always aligning with what an environmentalist is. And I think it's time. And I've been saying for a while, it's like, well, maybe the old school environmentalism, it's time to evolve that a bit, which I think we'll get into our, our next topic. So our next you know, our next evolution maybe of the environmental movement might have a different name, does incorporate this sort of thinking. We have to be able to understand this stuff and maybe it's going to attract minds who are able to process this information. But so you have, it seems on the surface, it seems very disparate. So you're, you're interested in all sorts of economic stuff, yet you're an editor of something called consciousevolution.co.uk, which is about philosophy and clearly some sort of evolution. How does that tie in at all? Yeah, so conscious evolution is the intentional effort to drive forward our individual and collective evolution. It's aligning our individual lives and redesigning our societies with the arrow of evolution. So fundamental to that idea is that evolution has a direction. Mm -hmm. um, and very quickly, it has two directions. It goes from small scales to big scales. So single cell organisms, multicellular organisms, groups of multicellular organisms, you know, patterns repeated of humans, small bands to tribes, to city states, to nation states, etc. So you've got these increasing scales of cooperation driven by game theory. And then the second direction is that it gets better and better at evolving. Uh -huh. It gets, acquires new capacities for evolution. So, you know, in the bio biological evolutionary process, we went from asexual reproduction to sexual reproduction. That's a, a more efficient, more effective way of discovering new adaptions. Um, so it's still biological evolution, but it found a new way to power itself that's more efficient and more effective. And so we get a flourishing of diversity and complexity after the dawn of sexual reproduction. Um, and what conscious evolution really is, is uh, an analogous switch that needs to take place in our cultural evolution. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not talking about, um, you know, sort of biological gene-based evolution when I talk about cult uh, conscious evolution. I'm not talking about eugenics or something. Right. I'm talking about cultural evolution powered in a new way. And so we, we are going from, at the moment, largely unconscious cultural evolution. Mm -hmm. So driven by our evolutionary past, driven by our biological and cultural conditioning to a conscious evolutionary process where we are, like I say, we're deliberately leading our lives in such a way that the, that arrow of evolution that I've described can be allowed to continue and flourish. Yes. Um, in, and we're redesigning our societies in such a way that that line can be allowed to continue. 
um, and and lead to you know a flourishing of diversity, complexity, creativity, and and increasing scales of cooperation. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's kind of my dirty little secret behind all of this on the Green Root podcast is I do believe we need to have basically, if you phrase it that way, conscious evolution for us to be able to really enact any of the other aspects that we want to have happen. So it's one thing right now to if people are at a certain uh, you could just say state of consciousness where or mindset or way of looking at the world, the lens through which they view the world, if they're comfortable with how things are and they don't see the problems inherent in, say, environmental issues or economic issues, you're not going to be able to convince them, right? It's sort of moot to put out all of this rational argument. You can blow them away in an argument. If they're not seeing that in terms of what they value and how they perceive the world, it's sort of meaningless. Whereas if you get people to start shifting into things where they don't have to be convinced that the natural world is valuable, they just sense it. So they start operating as if that's true, then it's already like most of our work is done for us. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely spot on. And, you know, so with regards to the, uh, just to, to, to link that concept of conscious evolution back into the environmental thing, like how can we consciously evolve as individuals in ways that allow us to grasp the problem and be more effective, you know, environmental actors? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's basically two ways um, uh, one is we can enhance our cognitive complexity because climate change is a complex issue. And unless we are we have sufficient cognitive complexity to model that, we're going to make poor decisions. Good intentions are going to result in bad policy decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to give you one example, um, you know, the whole drive, the anti-plastic drive, um, which, you know, I'm all for and it's great. We need to reduce plastic. We need to use less of it. Right. Um, but because that's this really simple issue that people can understand, they sort of they take that. First of all, they take that for the whole problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second of all, you, you find things like um, supermarkets removing all their plastic packaging. And then therefore we have to find a different way to transport food. And so they start using glass, which is heavier and which res- results in higher carbon emissions. Mm. Um so it, it's just one example of how really good intention, if we haven't really modeled the whole system in our head, a good intention can come out with a bad outcome. Right. And so that's one thing we need to do is we need to improve our cognitive capacity, our, our complexity of our thinking mm-hmm. um, and to live in this complex, adaptive world. Um, but the other thing we need to do is to shift cultural worldviews. So like you said before, there are worldviews evolved through a series of clearly discernible stages. Um, so of relevance to the modern world is the traditional, which is roughly, um, you know, scripture before science, um, family values, duty, um, but also it's, it's ethnocentric, it's, it's, it's nationalistic, uh, that kind of traditional So, so just worldview. to get in really quick, are you talking about spiral dynamics by any chance? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Spiral dynamics is one system that describes how cultures evolve through these stages. I, I would point people in the direction of metamodernism, which is an important upgrade on spiral dynamics. Hmm. Um, but essentially, yeah, you've nailed it. And the, the point is, if you're talking to somebody at that traditional stage, mm-hmm. if you if you start talking about, you know, we need to tackle global warming and we have all these global level issues, they're going to hear the words, but it's not really going to resonate. They're like, well, I don't really care about the globe. I care about my nation or, or my or my religion. Right. Or, you know, these are the, the, the memes that I'm interested in protecting. You talk about global warming. I'm like, first, perhaps they don't have a cognitive, well, not to conflate traditionalism with co- uh, cognitive capacity because sure. they're two separate things. But 
from a cultural point of view, it's just not going to resonate with them. Well, their right? life, their uh, life conditions don't necessarily require it. So they're focused on their survival and whatever's going on in their current scene. Right, right. And, and, and you know, the, the things that are important to them aren't at global level, right? right. Correct. So the, the next stage, the modernist stage, that is global in its mindset. Um, but it's growth oriented, it's progress oriented, and it, it tends to sacrifice, um, you know, environmental on the altar of economic growth and progress. And, you know, it's the kind of baby boomer perspective, mm -hmm. I yes. guess. Um, and, you know, and so beyond that, you've got postmodernism, which is very high on its, you know, egalitarian and social environmental values. And it's really good at all that stuff. Um, but it's, it's it's kind of polarizing and it makes the mistake of really judging all the previous worldviews right. and and potentially uh, stigmatizing them and and actually you know it, it fails to reach across our increasingly polarized cultural space yes um and and that can lead to problems you know so the whole trump and brexit thing mm -hmm. for me that is a symptom of a whole load of people from the traditional stage who felt disenfranchised and demonized and not represented Yes, and the so, folks in the postmodern aspects there, they're actually kind of holding those other folks back instead of bringing them towards a new way of thinking because there are a lot of toxic, unhealthy behaviors. So a lot of folks maybe in those stages will look at somebody who is in that more postmodern view and be like, these people are wacky. These people are insulting me for just my cultural beliefs. Uh, I don't want to be that. And that sort of slows down the whole progress. Right, exactly. And they end up associating that with environmentalism when, of yes. course, environmentalism has nothing to do with that, you know. Right. Um, so so you get this crazy sort of thing where, um, you know, like like I've seen sort of anti-climate change protests in America and they're, they're protesting, you know, um, uh, government action on climate change mm -hmm. um, in the name of freedom, you know. Mm -hmm. So they're like, no, no, we want our freedom to, you know, make as much money as we can and burn as much oil as we want and drive big cars. But they fail to see that, like, actually, if we don't take action on climate change, that's going to impel the very freedoms that they hold dear sooner yes, or later. For sure. Right. So it's yeah, you've got to work with people where they're at. And, and you've got to realize that. And, and this is the next stage that we're trying to get to is to realize that actually all of those worldviews have their truths and insights. Mm -hmm. They also have their blind spots and their pathologies. Yes. And we have to find a way to integrate the best that they all have to offer rather than demonizing and, and stigmatizing any stage that's different from us. But which is very tricky because, yeah, I used to be somebody who was hardcore environmentalist. I mean, I still pretty much have all those same values ecologically. I, I think pretty much all the things I believed for 20 years in regards to the environment are basically come true but i used to think okay the folks who are say um you know the loggers they're, they're bad people they don't they hate the environment and then over time i realized wait a second that that's that's not really what's going on here and in fact i do disagree that they should be going in here and logging this old growth forest like none of that's changed but what has changed is my view of why they're doing it and the idea, so understanding it, not demonizing them as much, still disliking that activity as much as I did before, but realizing they're kind of just at a particular stage where, say, they're just trying to make a living and they haven't seen an alternative. And meanwhile, my side is just telling them what they're doing is bad, which is kind of true, but it's not giving them anything else. So what are they supposed to do? They're just supposed to just become a, a hippie like me and uh, be, you know become an environmental protester? Well, maybe they don't have that option. So I do think a lot of the issue is that those who are professing environmental concerns aren't really suggesting what we should be doing instead. 
Yeah, and this and this kind of goes back to the issue of, of monetary systems as well, because mm-hmm. you know, like you say, if you're a if you're a you know poor subsistence farmer or, or in the Amazon, and you you know you log to pay your family, um, you know you don't have much option sure. exactly, right? And that's because the incentives are stacked in the wrong way. So you can make money from logging a forest, but there's not that many other options to you. And so that's really down to the monetary system design, but also government policy, right? We're going to do a whole load of people out of a job. Um, who you know used to make money logging rainforest or drilling for oil, you know we we have to stack incentives such that there's an option for them right. um, outside of that, and that's and that's but that's that's basically what government's supposed to do, right? It's supposed to align incentives so that so that what makes sense for the individual makes sense for the collective. The incentives is really what it's all about. I mean, there's all these studies that show, particularly in the U.S., that the more you consume, the more. I mean, your your social status goes up. So that's a whole other aspect there. But in terms of economically, obviously, if you're doing something that's extractive uh, and typically destructive to the natural world, that's just the way our economic system sets it up. So we can we can both say that needs to change. We don't like these activities, but not just shitting all over the people who really don't have any other option than to participate in it. And I do think that's a more complex way of thinking than a lot of folks in the current environmental movement are interested in. And even if you talk to them about this stuff, it doesn't quite process. It's like, oh, it sounds like you're you're pro-logging. It's like, well, you obviously didn't listen to what I just said. I don't support these activities. I understand why people are doing them. Just us saying they're bad, you know, just saying, keep it in the ground regarding fossil fuels, which I support. I think we need to transition off fossil fuels for sure. But just saying that doesn't doesn't do anything. It's, mm, a, start. And that, it's a start, you know, it's getting an idea out there, but it's not magic. And that that's the, you know, like we talked about all these worldviews have their truths and insights as long as they're, as well as their potential pathologies and blind spots. Well, that's the potentially unhealthy side of postmodernism. There's this kind of um, quite judgmental, screechy, holier-than-thou activism where, you know, they're, they're like right, whether they're right or wrong is kind of irrelevant because they end up pissing off so many of the people that they need to work with, right? Yeah. Um, and and, and it, like you said, it doesn't help anyone who's not at their particular worldview get to their worldview. It just demonizes them. It's so um, crucial. And that's something I've been trying to talk to folks about. And perhaps I just haven't developed the language to communicate it that well, but it's it's very strange because um, I'm I'm protected because I have a pretty stellar environmental track record, but I do find people are saying, "You're critiquing the environmental movement." Are sounds like you're anti-environmentalist, and it's like, nope, that's that's not it. You got you got to keep processing this information. So I come from the background of the environmental inform- environmental movement. I support all of these causes here. It's not working. <laughs> What, how else can we think about things? But people kind of want to just keep doing the same thing. And, and frankly, it comes down to, I think, a lot of young people come in and for the first time, like, did you know about this? It's like, yes, yeah, we have known about that for about 45 years. But to them, it's a new discovery. So they keep going through that process, which is why I think it is important to have, you know, multi-generations. So you can have folks who were back in the Earth First stuff or even before that who can say, hey, we, you know, we've been saying all these things for a long time. We haven't quite improved what the state right now so maybe we should take a look at these other aspects and maybe we shouldn't be spending all our time just demonizing the other side um i always come back to that phrase i'm not a religious person but it's uh love the sinner hate the sin so i don't like the destruction in the amazon rainforest 
I understand that the people there are suffering and they don't have a lot economically to go on otherwise. So it's not about focusing on them. It's focusing on these systems. So it's that systems thinking. It's one of the it's one of the really interesting or sort of bizarre things about our sort of polarized cultural space at the moment that it is so tribal like that. It's like mm -hmm. it's like, OK, you know, I say, well, actually, I'm not so sure about the whole, uh, you know, gender pronoun thing. And suddenly, therefore, somebody assumes that I'm a climate change denying Trump voting. You know, it's like you're either with me or against me. You have to be you have to buy into the whole postmodern thing or not at all. And, and actually, we need to embrace complexity. Like, so it, it, it's weird, right, for example, that if I tell you my views on, I don't know, in, in America, for example, I tell you my views on gun control, mm -hmm. chances are you can predict my views on climate change, abortion, voting, all of these different issues, right. when in fact, the only thing that ties those issues together is, well, you could say some people's like psychological disposition mm -hmm. to, to a certain extent, um, but essentially, the main thing that ties them together is the tribal affiliation with con American conservatism, right? That's what yeah. ties them together. But if we break free of that and we start actually really thinking for ourselves and not just not just making up our mind based on whether or not we signal our membership of an in-group, you know? Yes. So that, that's how most people make their minds up is that is that, you know, really like they're surrounded by a load of people who have a certain cultural worldview and they fit into that. And of course, there's a logic and consistency to all of these worldviews. So they end up you know, being exposed, that ends up making sense to them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if if you're in a if you're in a really tribal, you know, polarized cultural space, it's really costly to signal your dissent on any one of those issues. Yes. You know, because yes. all my friends are environmental activists. They all have LGBTQ plus rights. They all have, mm -hmm. you know, all of these. Um, you know, and, and, and by the way, all these great causes, which yes. I really believe in. Yeah. But, you know, let's say if I have a particular issue with one of them or, you know, that's not the way I look at the world then suddenly, you know, you, you, people think you are, you're like a, a, an enemy and need to be excluded from the group when you're it's out. actually like, oh, no, everything's nuanced and, you know, people have their different views on everything and, and, and we need to find a way to embrace the complexity of the world. Well, you're exiled is basically what happens. And it, it can even be when you are critiquing your side to improve it, to actually do something about those values. So that's what, if you, have, you haven't seen that film, Planet of the Humans, I, I keep going back to it for various, well, I'm, I'm in it, but also because um, I'm a journalist and have been trying to write about it. There's all this censorship around it. But ultimately, it was real, genuine, hardcore environmentalists critiquing the environmental movement. So who had the most problem with this? Other environmentalists. And basically, but they couldn't process it. They're like, it short circuits their brain because they're saying, oh, this is climate denial. But the whole film is actually about climate change. So but they can't process it. They're like environmentalists, but saying environmentalism isn't working, you know, and so like their heads explode. And there was all of this fallout around it and all this censorship because they just just couldn't process that issue. But, yeah, when you do, when you dare to critique your own side to improve it, it's seen as still enemy because of that whole tribal way of thinking and you're kind of left out in the cold. So what I'm trying to really do is, is create a space here, the Green Root Podcast, to certainly talk about some traditional issues of environmentalism. And I think lots of great stuff has been done over the years, but then maybe find the folks who are a bit of the iconoclast, the folks who no longer feel like they fit into that group because they don't walk lockstep in the group think, but they genuinely care about the values. So a lot of folks will say, mm -hmm. 
the only people who critique the environmental movement are conservatives who are anti-climate change. Well, that is one group that critiques the environmental movement, but you see that's, that's a different, that's pre-environmentalism. So this is almost like post-environmentalism. And by the time I finish saying these things, their eyes have glazed over and I've lost them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so developing the language to do this, but putting out conversations like this, and um, I'm, I'm so glad you got us into this aspect. We'll probably wrap up in a minute here, but bringing this really to its fruition, which is we do need to come up with better systems, but unless our heads are in the right place to really embrace those systems and make them work, it's not gonna happen on its own. So it is both that idea of individual and collective. We tend to be like, oh, it's all the corporation's fault. It's like, it is also the corporation's fault, but we keep sending, you know, the fracking companies. It's like, well, we keep sending our um, bill to them, you know, our gas bill to them every single month to support them. So it is a little bit on us as well, but we do, of course, we create these different systems to feed our natural human hungers and to survive. It's not saying that we all have to go live in caves, though I don't think that's the worst idea, but we're not really suggesting that. But we're suggesting looking on the inside for where our head is at and kind of how our thinking is. So in terms of where you phrase it, conscious evolution, but then also tying into these larger systems. And do you, can we do one without the other, do you think, or do we need to have both? No, we definitely need to have both. And, and, and just another point to really, um, uh, sort of nail that home as well like you know that the, the the a lot of what we talked about requires government intervention obviously changing the monetary system um changing taxes and subsidies to change incentive structures but you know even national governments are have their hands tied you know they have to remain internationally competitive to business if they don't they lose investment they lose jobs and as we talked about a contraction in the economy is you know re a real problem in a debt and interest-based monetary system and so they themselves have their hands tied. And, and really, unless na nations move together simultaneously to tackle global issues like this, then you're going to have a kind of first mover problem where the first country is at an economic disadvantage to all the others. Okay. Um, so, so on that point, I'd just like quickly to signpost an organization called Simpol, S-I-M-P-O-L, which um, is one route to global governance because... Yeah, without global governance, I also think solving climate change is mathematically impossible. Hmm. Um, and and the, uh, the only other thing that I'd like to signpost before we go is we talked about the um, collective government response to this monetary system problem, but there is also an individual response. If you think, you know what, we can't wait for governments to take action on this issue, um, there are small-scale monetary systems that you as an individual can sign up to right now um, which allow you to exchange goods and services without using our national currency, which is, you know, linked to debt and interest. So there's one called the Open Credit Network, uh, which is based in the UK, the Open Credit Network. Um, there's, there's, there's one in Sardinia called the Sardex. There's one in Switzerland called the Weir. There's lots in America. Uh, Barkshares is a famous one that's been going for a long time. It's, um, uh, I can't, I'm not actually sure where exactly it's based, but it's locally based. Um, but there are plenty of um, alternate monetary systems that one can use if you're trying to conduct economic activity, but you don't want to be part of this problem. And, um, and, and real and, quick, is that that's more than just cryptocurrency, though? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Cryptocurrencies uh, can could be part of the pro could be part of the solution. Uh -huh. um, but you know, as I'm sure you well know, 
blockchain is so energy intensive to run that it's more of a problem than a solution. Hmm. Um, but 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 certainly cryptocurrencies could be part of a solution. And, and, and I'm imagining in the future that one of these cryptocurrencies that's well designed enough could form the basis for a global currency that isn't based on debt and interest for sure. Okay. Um, but but I, I you know, I'm not haven't kept my eyes close to that space as I'd like. Um, I think ho- hollow hollow chain. Anyway, I think probably what's better rather than me just like having a guess at a few names. Yeah, that's maybe I'll, I'll do a bit of digging and send some links over and you can add them to the show notes. Well, that's great. I just wanted to clarify that we're talking about more than just cryptocurrency. And I appreciate you explaining that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Local exchange trading systems is the best mecha- the best sort of monetary system that really works and tackles this debt and interest problem. Great. Well, do you have any last words for the hundreds of millions of people who are uh, listening to my podcast right now? <laughs> um, no, I just say, uh, I just say it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, oh, I don't know, actually, I've got nothing to say. Just say <laughs> hi. How are you all doing? Have you had a nice day? <laughs> That's probably a really important step, right? We got to learn to be cordial with one another and how we treat one <laughs> another, I think, is probably really central to a lot of this. So I, I think that's a great way to end. Thank you, Robert Cobbold, uh, Program Manager of Green Schools Project. Folks, check that out. Founder and editor of <clears throat> ConsciousEvolution.co.uk. Uh, that's an online philosophy publication. Can people subscribe to that? How do folks... Uh, start getting that to their brains. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, um, you can add your email on the website um, and I'm going to let you know I've got my own podcast coming out. I'll email you when that's out. I don't spam people at all, maybe twice ever. Um, but as I start to publish my podcast, the more interesting stuff you'll, you'll hear from me. That sounds exciting. I am definitely going to be following along. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you, Josh.